0: Hello, Radio Land. It's a rainy summer midnight, and I just got back from my Alberta road trip a few days ago. Drove into the wee hours coming back. Maybe you're on the road. Maybe you're dancing around in your kitchen. Maybe you're sitting out back in the cool, cool, cool of the evening sipping drinks with the radio on. Or it's early morning. You're out for a run or A midday perambulation on the mean streets of Vancouver. That should work, too. Whenever it is, wherever you are. You are listening to Episode 3 of Soul Food, Ghost Light, the summer edition. This time around, road food. keeps me going on a road trip? Radio. Radio shows. Or their portable telephone-sized grandchildren podcasts. The best of them is certainly This American Life, with the hottest host in hipsterdom, Ira Glass. Or it was the best of them, before they went all investigative journalism and deep dives into politics everybody does that stuff but in earlier days this american life was billed as stories of everyday life in these united states stories like this one busman's
1: holiday from 2014. now a man who took a leap into the unknown back in 1947 he was a new york city bus driver named william smillo for a while, he became the most famous bus driver in the country, though I think what that really means is that he was the only famous bus driver in the country. He told his story on television.
2: Pepsi Cola presents Fay hey Emerson.
3: Hello again. Do you ever think of getting away from it all? A bus driver had that same feeling, and he made every headline in the country. So I asked him to come up here and tell us all about it. Hello, Bill. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Come on, sit down and
2: let's talk. Hey, Charlie, got a couple of Pepsis here for us? Pepsis
1: right here. Thanks, Charlie. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so I just want to describe what's happening here. It's black and white. The set of this TV show is a living room, but like a complete living room with everything. Window blinds, paintings on the walls, there's a credenza. This was back before TV figured out that the only part of the living room that they actually need for a talk show is the couch. So, okay, a butler, yes, a butler, hands the host, Faye Emerson, a silver tray with a bottle of Pepsi and two glasses. Faye pours her guest a soda and...
3: Will you tell us what happened, please? Wonderful.
1: Well, it's one of those things. I was on a job
2: for about 20 years, and I really got tired of it all, you know. Up and down, every day, the same people, the same stops, nickels, dimes, transfers, and... Well, this morning, I thought I'd try something different. So when i come out of my garage, instead of making a right turn to go off my route, I thought I'd make a left turn.
3: And that was the first thought you'd really given to it, just right. you did it on impulse.
2: So I made this left turn, and I went west towards George Washington Bridge. It was a beautiful morning, sun shining. So I got on the other side of Washington Bridge. I was in Jersey then, and I stopped for breakfast.
1: After breakfast, Simele got back in his bus, and he didn't drive to the Bronx to pick up his passengers on his usual route. He headed south on U.S. Route 1. Samilla had been a bus driver with what was then called the Surface Transportation System of New York for 17 years without any problems. Went to work every day. Never complained, people said. And as he drove further and further away from New York City and from his job and from his, you know, life, he switched the destination sign from Subway it's a special. Hours passed.
2: I kept riding. Before I knew it, I was in Washington. And I was right in front of the White House.
3: Mm-hmm. Ever been to Washington before?
2: Never been there. Never.
1: No, On the third day, Samilla and his bus arrived in Hollywood, Florida, just north of Miami. I it was late. He said he went for a swim.
2: Moonlight bathing. I enjoyed that very much.
3: Oh, what a thrill.
2: It was.
1: William Smilla was 1,300 miles from the Bronx, 1,300 miles from New York traffic, from the daily grind.
3: You did what everybody always wanted to do. Just
2: get away from everything. That's what I wanted to
3: do. Talking about getting away from it all, well, if you are planning to get away from it all, you may like to know that no matter where you go, you're almost sure to find friendly, sparkling Pepsi-Cola waiting for you.
4: Even I, I'm gone. Gotta go and get my move on on. I've been hanging here for days. Accept my resignation, give me my check. Please understand this won't be the last pack on your, your lips. I check the weather forecast, not a cloud in the sky. My bags are all packed now. You wonder why we're a roller coaster. You're a roller coaster, I swear. And we can't afford the rent. And there's those always spent. And I can barely sleep the night. June about brand new spaces and Brand new faces, yeah June about brand new spaces and Brand new faces, yeah I said go ahead and throw something Objects hard to find Viles are still broken From last time Have you lost your temper yet? Where's the romance in watching TV? Where's the future? Still, it will bring us tell me. I'm better off with guitars and paper. Oh, and we can move afford the rent There's love who's always spent And I can barely sleep the night June, I'll find no spaces in Random faces, yeah. Dream about random spaces and random faces, yeah. Yo, roller coaster, baby, I swear. Yo, roller coaster, baby, I swear. I'm roller coaster too. It was nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Yo, roller coaster, baby, I swear. Yo, roller coaster, baby, I swear. I'm on roller coasters, was Nice to meet you, nice to meet you. Alright, yeah. What about Frederick? He's already in the truck. The dog's with me, babe. On that, you can go and get stuck. We're dishing these string right together. I'll sit the doors with me, babe. We're digging these dream right together. Happy oh, 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 oh. and yeah, we can't afford the rent. And there's loads of ways spent, and I can barely sleep tonight. Dreaming about brand new faces in brand new faces in and brand new facey air.
0: My dear Maybelline, works seven days of the week reading the words on a screen. She says, I hate it here. No, it don't matter what road we're on. Let's get a million miles away from here. That was Zach Pick from his 2009 debut album, Fierce Wind. I'll tell you a story about that record in a minute. Before that, though, we heard Calgary's own Michael Bernard Fitzgerald with Brand New Spaces, also from 2009. What's with 2009, anyway? I'm leaving. I'm gone. Gotta go get my move on. I've been hanging here for days. Accept my resignation. Give me my check. What about Frederick? He's already in the truck. The dog's with me, babe. Talking about Brand New Spaces and Brand New Faces. Yeah. Yeah going back to Maybelline, Zach's Maybelline, not Chuck's, except, ah, what the heck, from 1955 on Chess Records, here's another debut, the other Maybelline by Chuck Berry and his Combo.
5: Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started doing the things you used to do. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a coup de bill. A Cadillac like a rolling on an open road, nothing out run my V84. A. A. a Cadillac like doing about nine to five bumper to bumper rolling side to side. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started back doing the things you I pulled up the heart of the got a hot and wouldn't do no more. The gun got a cloud and started to rain. I threw in my horn for the passing lane. The rain water blowing all under my hood. I knew that I was doing my motor good. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started back doing the thing. Do hill Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You done started back doing the thing you used to do.
0: Charles Edward Anderson Barry talking about that Cadillac pulled up at 104. Ford got hot and wouldn't do no more. It done got cloudy and started to rain. I tooted my horn for the passing lane. The rainwater blowing all under my hood. I knew that wasn't doing my motor no good. Now, where were we? Road Trip, Alberta. Zack Pick. A decade or more ago, on a trip to Alberta, I drove around the back roads east of Camrose, tracking down the homestead where my mom was born. That little grandpa, Olaf Smorley, farmed until he moved into a tiny house, not a modern, trendy tiny house, but a house that was just tiny, in Holden, a few miles north and east of the farm. There was heavy rain the night before, so I bought some rubber boots at the hardware store in Camrose for tromping through the fields and I needed them. But man, it was heavy going through the canola that was planted around what was left of the Smorley place. The rubbery green stalks grabbed onto my wet gumboots, and it took a long time to slog through. But I'd come that far on unmarked country roads, lost half the time. I had my camera and I wasn't about to turn back. Standing on the little rise where the frame of the house still stood probably 80 or 90 years after it was built It was a lot the worse for wear and weather I'm sure the land didn't look a lot like what my grandpa had looked out on the crops were different roads were different paved some of them But the air was probably just as fresh and sweet And you could still see Zion Lutheran Church just across the road to the south, where his first wife was buried. And I imagined what it might have been like to be him. My music that day, driving the back roads looking for traces of my ancestors, was Zach Pick's Fierce Wind. Played that CD over and over. So those songs always take me back to that particular road trip, all those memories. Maybelline was never Zach's favorite song on that album, and I owe it to him to play you one of the others that sound more like that Sunday afternoon and more like what he intended his record to sound like. As I remember the story, the guy that was producing the album liked the rest of the tunes, but he asked Zach if he had anything else, maybe something a bit more upbeat, a bit more ear-catching. So Zach more or less reluctantly played in Maybelline and it ended up on the record. And guess what tune everybody always asks for. Sorry about that, Zach. Well, I like it. But here's another tune from Fierce Wind that's closer to the heart of that record, and maybe the singer and definitely closer to the heart of that Sunday afternoon on the prairies after it rained.
6: Fortune, imagine when we had nothing else to frame it in. Nothing left to find out, no roads less traveled than the one we are on. I know we're going though Goodbye, my friend, goodbye. call.
0: than Sherry Plett on background vocals there. You can pick up a copy of Fierce Wind at Zach Pick, Z-A-A-C Pick on Bandcamp. Six bucks for a great record. And you know, when you can buy these things from Bandcamp or the artist's website, do it. iTunes is great. You get lots of good stuff there, but the money goes To the artists, when you buy it from them, they don't see much out of those iTunes purchases. Support your local artist. I have such a strong memory of this next song. Uh, On another family road trip, taking our little ones, Thea and Katie, to see my family in Calgary. Driving around and listening to this next song over and over and over. All our summer vacations in those days were road trips to Calgary or California to visit Carol's family. But I was driving around Calgary. Something tells me I was heading out to play my annual game of golf with my dad, but probably I was just running an errand. It was a hot, hot, dry Alberta summer. And I gulped down this song like I was dying of thirst. Not so much food for my soul as water for a soul dehydrated man.
7: Who is not afraid? Who walks tall? Who has courage? Where is honor? What is peace? Who are we? Who is not afraid? Who walks tall? Who has courage? Where is honor? What is peace? Who are Lovers stroll the old boy. they will never be married. Who is not afraid, who walks tall, who has courage? Where is honor, what is peace, who are we? Who is not afraid, who walks tall, who has courage? Space
0: Does call on us for courage sometimes, doesn't it? In my life, it was my chosen vocation that was the most terrifying, that kept needing me to walk tall. But everybody's got something. Our mortality, the people we love, the people we fear, the times we live in, being alone, money. Who is not afraid? Who walks tall? Who has courage? Where is honor? What is peace? Who are we? That tune was by Charlie Peacock, Sacramento's Finest. Funny how the threads end up tying together, isn't it? Sometime in the late 80s, Mr. Peacock was restoring my soul, driving around Calgary, leading me to drink from those still waters. Then maybe... Twenty, twenty-five years later, in the summer of 2011, I was on the road again, Carol and I driving Katie down to law school in that very same town, Sacramento, which is Spanish for sacrament. Partway down the Oregon coast, I settled the girls into a motel and headed out on my own, searching for the beach where I first stood in the ocean a prairie boy who grew up dreaming of surfing and scuba diving and undersea adventures. As I drove my favorite stretch of road in the whole world one evening, I played another song over and over and over, trying to sing along with every exhilarating word and phrase and nuance.
8: Go by my door It's never been this close before Never been so easy Or so slow I've been shooting in the dark too long When something's not right, it's wrong You're gonna make me lose When you go Dragon clouds so high above I've only known careless love It always has hit me from below But this time round it's more correct Right on target, so direct you're gonna make me loads when you go Purple clover, queen anne lace Crimson hair across your face You can make me cry if you don't know Can't remember what I was thinking of You might be spoiling me too much love You're gonna make me lonesome when you go Flowers on the hillside blooming crazy Crickets talking back and forth in rhyme Blue River running slow and lazy I could stay with you forever And never realize the time Situations have ended sad Relationships have all been bad Mine have been like Lanes and Rambo But there's no way I can compare All them scenes to this affair You're gonna make me lonesome when you go You're gonna make me wonder what I'm doing Staying far behind without you. You're gonna make me wonder what I'm saying. You're gonna make me give myself a good talking, too. I look for you in old Honolulu, San Francisco, or Ashtabula. You're gonna have to leave me now, I know. But I see you in the sky above, in the tall grass, and the ones I love. You're gonna make me lonesome when you go.
0: It didn't occur to me then, but it occurs to me now that maybe it was that last verse that had lodged inside me like a fish hook. I was caught up in the fireworks of all the words and the sounds, the headlong momentum of the song, but maybe at that particular moment and in that particular verse, Mr. Dillon was speaking the heart, not so much of a lover, but a father. You're going to have to leave me now, I know, but I'll see you in the sky above, in the tall grass and the ones I love. You're going to make me lonesome when you go. I think it was maybe the next summer that we went down to visit Katie. Thea and Lala were with us that time. We were strolling the sun-baked streets of Sacramento, and I was lured into the cool shade of Eureka, a used record store. I found a few 10-inch discs from the 50s, including the Nat King Toll Trio, when he was more a jazz player than an M.O.R. crooner. But the prize catch was a sweet slab of wax simply titled Bobby Troop, who wrote what is surely the finest road song of them all.
9: If you ever plan to mow the west, travel by way, take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66, it winds from Chicago to L.A., more than two a thousand miles all the way. Get your kicks on Route 66. Go through St. Louis, Joplin, Missouri, Oklahoma City Looks mighty pretty, you'll see Amarillo Gallup, New Mexico, Flagstaff, Arizona Don't forget Winona, Kingman, Boston, San Bernardino Won't you get hip to this timely tip When you make that California trip Get your kicks on Route 66 Get your kicks on Route sixty six. Get your kicks on Route sixty-six.
0: Oh yeah, let's hear it for Bobby Troop, the composer himself, playing his own tune. A lot of people recorded that song, and you can't beat Nat King Cole's version, but damn there's something about the guy himself singing his own Song Playing his own song, because that's another thing you got to love about Bobby Troop, some fine and swinging jazz piano. But those lyrics, daddy-o. Anybody who'd rhyme Flagstaff, Arizona with Don't Forget Winona, that's in Arizona, by the way, the only town that is mentioned out of sequence, that person is getting just as much kick out of making music as he did on Route 66. Robert Wesley Troop, Jr. penned that song on a road trip from Pennsylvania to California when he pulled up stakes and moved to Hollywood in search of songwriting fame and fortune. The life-changing road trip started on Highway 40, but his wife thought Get Your Kicks on Route 66 might make a better lyric, so 66 it was. There's more towns on that route, and hey, it swings. Have a party on Route 40? I don't think so. Thanks, Cynthia. The first Mrs. Troop. Well, here we are in the dog days of summer. Say hi, Scout. (coughs) And maybe you're feeling listless. Well, I've got the solution. Next to an ice-cold Pepsi, nothing refreshes quite like music. Or a good list. So listen up, Radio Land. I want to hear from you. I want you to send me your top 10 tunes of summer, or your five summer faves, or, or the one song that always says summer to you. Send your list to soulfood at dot yeah, ORG is short for organization, but we're a little short on organization around here. Nevertheless, that is our email Address. And if you feel so inclined, let me know what makes those songs your quintessential summer songs. That's not required, just a list is fine. That's soulfood at ronreed.org.
3: Well, it shouldn't be half this hard to get you, me, and a Texaco card on the open road. With the windows down And the radio up And the wheels going round Well I got the want Got the job And I got way too many people saying It wouldn't be such a crime for you and me to leave the world behind. Just to head north or maybe south. Talking to each other till our voices wear out. We'll just listen to the engine roll.
0: you can drive my car to Nashville and back on the open road with the windows down the radio up and the wheels going round just don't forget to check the oil and top up the radiator when you stop for gas that's from Carolyn Aaron's 2001 release travelers and it was co-written by none other than mr. Spencer Capier I should let you know we're going into extra innings this week because I wanted to listen to this next story from soul food pal Carolyn Aarons and that means we're going to run a little bit over time. So, if you've got another 20 minutes, stick around. If not, press pause and come back sometime when you can give it a listen. It deserves your full attention. First time I ever heard Carolyn was at a coffee house. Sorry, kids. That's uh, that's like a casual concert, I guess, where people sat around at tables and uh, drank coffee and stuff like that. You know, like hippies or people that used to be hippies or people that thought they were hippies. Anyway, I was at a coffee house in the Regent College Atrium. Now, I was there to hear Bill Maloney Frontman for the Vigilantes of Love, has to be the best band name ever. But there was this opening act, and I thought, okay, I hope they're good, I'm here to hear Bill Maloney. But I left that night, not with a new record by the head Vigilante, but with a humble little cassette by the opening act. I figured they were going places, either career-wise or quite literally, with the name Carolyn Ahrens and the Road Scholars. Second favorite band name of all time. Now, I may or may not have gotten permission to play you a tune from that early, early quasi-demo tape, but I did talk Carolyn into recording a reminiscence about her own road trip a year or two after that coffeehouse encounter when she headed down to Nashville to record her breakout album, but nearly lost what mattered most. Here we go. The
10: summer of 1993 was uncharacteristically humid in Nashville. At least, that's what the weathermen and gas station attendants all told us. Any summer we spent in Tennessee, the locals, by way of apology, claimed the heat was unusually bad. As if, under more typical circumstances, a refreshing ocean breeze was known to waft down the Cumberland River, keeping everything perfectly reasonable. We arrived on the 4th of July and hit the outskirts of Nashville just in time for the fireworks. We were flattered, of course, to receive such an extravagant welcome, but it was hard to keep our bleary eyes open. There are just over 2,500 miles between Nashville and Vancouver, and we had driven them in three 18-hour days. We had seen most of America's midsection through the bug-stained windows of our little white Chevy, and now all we wanted to see was a bed. Aside from a nasty run-in with a ticket-wielding Missouri State Trooper, we'd had a good trip, and we had spent much of it basking in the romantic, poetic light of our adventure. At 25 and 29 years old, we could still, we hoped, be considered young. We were definitely in love, and if you squinted at our 89 Cavalier the right way, you could almost be convinced that it was a sports car. It would have been a nice touch to have the wind blow through our hair, but for most of our journey it was too hot to open the windows, so we kept the air conditioner on high and achieved, you know, approximately the same effect. Now that we had almost reached our destination, the celebration, complete with pyrotechnics, seemed rather ridiculously perfect. (laughs) We stayed with Chris and Sally Jones. Our friends themselves were transplants. Sal was from Alberta, Chris was from New York, but if their creaky houses, 100-year-old walls could talk, they would undoubtedly speak in a genteel Southern drawl. After all, you couldn't throw a rock over the Jones' backyard fence without hitting the grave of a Confederate soldier. The whole place seemed to rustle with history, animated by, not ghosts exactly, but a palpable sense of other times and other lives. The house was also animated by, well, animals. Mark and I were only two of the many strays that Sal took in. Three new cats had also joined the menagerie. Now here's the thing, I wasn't really a cat person. Truth be told, I was almost a little afraid of cats. Growing up, my father's allergies had made our household rather hostile to any feline presence. Cats as a species were far too secretive and I always had the feeling they were barely tolerating me. Well, Sal's cats must have smelled my fear. The creatures sought me out day and especially night. In the wee hours, they would creep into the guest room and slink onto the bed. And then inevitably the cats would settle on my chest and spend the rest of their night relentlessly kneading my rib cage with their paws. Even their purrs of contentment seemed a little menacing in the dark, their pleasure rattling in their chests like the rumble of distant thunder. I don't know what it was exactly, perhaps the oppression of the heat or of the cats, the lack of sleep or of anything familiar, but I began to get a strange, alarming sense that all was not well. I tried for several days to shake it off or explain it away as fatigue or indigestion. I kept impatiently reminding myself that the feeling made no sense. We'd come to the South for the express purpose of nurturing my dreams as a singer and a songwriter, and it seemed as if the dreams might actually be coming true. But every night I would lie tense and disquieted, my brain buzzing ominously like the cat's. day I remain almost completely baffled by what happened next. The vague and cloudy sense of foreboding began to take a more definite shape until in the middle of one particularly sweltering night the walls of our little guest room closed in like a coffin and I lay trapped in a sweaty panic. Everything sane and solid and good in my life, everything I had always believed effortlessly, instinctually, spontaneously, so that my believing was as natural as breathing, all of that seemed all at once to disintegrate into absolutely nothing. Physically, I felt sick to my stomach, heart racing, fists clenched. Emotionally, maybe even spiritually, I was in cardiac arrest. The life-giving oxygen of faith and hope that had always sustained me was suddenly, inexplicably cut off. I could not feel the presence of God. See, I had said many times up until that moment that I simply could not understand how a human being could rise every day with the sun, could hear Bach or the Beatles could hold a squirming newborn or taste double-fudge ice cream or participate in any of the infinite number of small and persistent miracles of this life and, and not believe in God. Certainly I knew what it was to doubt. I had wrestled with the apparent contradictions I had encountered in Scripture and in my church and in my own nature. But however brave I felt I was being, however adrenaline-producing it was to stare down the barrel of my own mental pistol, truth was it had always been a game of Russian Roulette in which the gun wasn't actually loaded. Because that doubt was intellectual, doubt of the head, rather than existential doubt of the gut, the cellular tissue, the soul. However dark it might occasionally seem without and within, there had always been a place deeper inside where this little light flickered away resolutely. I believed. I always had. And I thought I always would. Until that stifling night in Franklin, Tennessee, when the air grew too thin to sustain the flame. And in a perfectly still, awful instant, the light went out and I had only fear and sadness and the desolation of an unspeakable emptiness. My Nashville schedule remained frantic and I was grateful for the distraction. The storm inside my soul settled down to a, a dull roar, and sometimes I was almost able to convince myself that nothing was wrong. But there were so many questions lurking just below the surface. I would sit down with Mark and Chris and Sal to watch the evening news, perfectly quaffed and tanned anchors, cheerfully listing the day's tragedies. And I would find myself overwhelmingly disturbed by the problem of pain in the world, the suffering of innocence, the injustice that universally characterizes human experience. I had certainly pondered this question before, but now it had progressed from a riddle to a threat. I would open my Bible, hoping against hope that I would find comfort and certainty in the pages, and instead I would find myself bewildered by an apparently angry and alien Old Testament God who seemed only too willing to smite a whole nation of men and women and innocent children, you know, to prove a point or I would just hold my Bible to my chest, trying with all my might to recapture the confidence I used to feel in the men who had written and assembled it, wondering how I could have been so unwaveringly certain that they had gotten it right. That certainty was what I mourned the most. Growing up in the North American evangelical culture of the 1970s and 80s, you know, where all the sermon points started with the same letter or formed an acronym, and the enigmas of redemption and sanctification were demystified into three or four easy steps, I had somehow absorbed or manufactured the idea that if I was a strong enough Christian, God and his interaction with the world and his children would make consistent sense to me. With complete sincerity, I had embraced a sort of sitcom spirituality in which all those gloomy trials and sufferings the apostles insisted on mentioning were viewed strictly as foils for inevitable victories, fleeting problems to be dramatically, swiftly, and neatly resolved, preferably within one 30-minute episode. I was raised on stories of the great moments of the faith, from the, the parting of the Red Sea to the arrival of the Israelites in the Promised Land. We had tended not to dwell on the 40 years of wilderness in between. Pinned beneath the cats in the Jones guest room, peering tensely into the dark, I suddenly found myself staring into the gaping chasm of the infinite number of things I did not, could not understand. I was left questioning everything, including and especially my right to question anything, and I could not shake the uneasy feeling that, In the words of my southern friends, I didn't know, come here from Sikkim. It devastated me to think I might be turning my back on God or letting him down. And so hanging over even the lightest and brightest moments of that summer was a dark, brooding storm cloud. The sense not only of betrayal, but of being a traitor. went about my business, and oddly enough, it was a productive time. We went to movies and concerts. We caught up with our Nashville friends and, of course, complained about the heat. Life went on, much as it had before, except that now I was constantly praying a singular, desperate prayer. Please, God, please make it like it used to be. We drove back the way we came, and for most of the first two days we hurtled like the Batmobile along Highway 70, all the way from St. Louis to the center of Utah. Kansas, which was somewhere in the middle, was even flatter than we remembered it, and we liked it that way. Mark discovered that in the long, straight stretches he could steer with his knees, dig out a well-worn deck of cards, and beat me soundly and repeatedly in games of gin rummy and hearts. I never won. My heart wasn't in it. My memory is oddly selective, so I've had to ask Mark what he recalls of that journey back across the wide open spaces of America. He tells me that somewhere near Topeka, under the cover of the dark of the first night, I began to haltingly speak more openly about my crisis of faith. He even has a vague memory of putting forth his own tentative, newly developing theory that God's truth was more expansive than we had previously imagined, and that maybe it was just possible that part of the reason I was feeling so fractured was that God was forcing his way out of the box we'd been keeping him in. Apparently, I burst into tears, terrified my husband was turning into a make-up-your-own-God universalist, or even worse, that he was almost as wretchedly uncertain about everything as I was. He tells me that between sobs I managed to choke out something along the lines of, then we don't even know the same God. I personally have no recollection of that particular conversation. Some memories are better left suppressed. There is one memory, however, that Mark and I don't have to coax each other to recall. As the sun was setting on the second day of our drive, we began to cut our way across Utah on Highway 15. We were still a few hours outside of Salt Lake City, and we were absently discussing how long we could wait before we needed to stop for dinner. I was feeling antsy, keenly aware of my continued misery, ready to crawl out of my own skin and be anywhere else. In need of a cool compress, I was leaning my feverish forehead against the air-conditioned glass of the passenger side window, staring into space. And then it happened. we found ourselves right in the middle of the canyons of Utah. We have since discovered that other people have heard of them, but at the time they caught us completely by surprise. On our trip down seven weeks earlier, we had hit this stretch of highway at night in the rain, and and we'd seen nothing but the beams of our own headlights. But now, now the canyons were filling every window, golden red, incandescent, chiseled into an infinite number of intricate, exquisite angles, a, a billion glimmering diamonds carved out of the stone. While we gaped, the sun descended, no longer distant and aloof, drawing lower and closer to warm the ruby rocks first into glowing embers and then into blazing fires and finally bursting out in explosions of glory. It was so intensely brilliant, we had to look away, but there was actually nowhere to turn, before us and behind us and on every side, we were hemmed in by unbearable beauty. Once again, I was aware of a constriction in my chest. Once again, I could not breathe. I had spent an anguished summer cajoling and begging and commanding God to answer my questions, devastated by what I perceived to be His silence. And now, all at once, it seemed even the rocks were crying out on His behalf. I became in that moment sort of a poor man's job, infinitely less tried and measurably less true, but nonetheless able to see in a holy flash a little of what it must have been like for Job to stand awestruck, repentant, wildly joyful, and gravely humbled by the voice of God. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? When I fixed limits for the sea and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clouds of earth stick together? My own tears were a welcome rain a desperately needed watering of the sticky clouds of dust that had become my own soul. We drove silently through the canyons, as slowly as the traffic would allow, and even when the sun had set and the rocks were shrouded in darkness, we could still feel their looming presence. By the time we reached Salt Lake City, I was weary with wonder, and I lay my head on Mark's shoulder in an exhausted acquiescence. I was praying, as deeply and directly as I've ever prayed anything, a simple prayer, thank you. To this day, I still mourn the simplicity and certainty that evaporated in the heat of that sweltering summer. God never did answer my desperate plea to make my faith like it used to be. Once I entered a little way into the mystery, there was no going back. I could no longer list all the things I did not understand about God as threats to my faith. Instead, they became the primary evidence that God was, in fact, God, and that I was, in fact, not. In the fall of 1995, I returned to Salt Lake City on official business as a recording artist. I decided at the last moment to deviate from my normal setlist in order to sing a geographically relevant song I had written about the red rocks that were only a stone's throw away. Afterwards, a young couple dropped by the autograph table and asked me to describe the canyons that Mark and I had seen. You, you can't have been far from one of our favorite vistas, said the girl with a secret smile. A place called Angel's Landing. Angel's Landing. I checked a map, and that really is the name of one of the clusters of canyons. It seems that I am not the only one who has heard the rocks cry out somewhere near Highway 15 and seen, if only for a moment, something of the eternal glimmering there in the golden rim.
0: That's from Carolyn Aaron's book, Living the Questions, reprinted in Wrestling with Angels. The music you heard featured some of Carolyn's musical collaborators over the years. Altar of Ego, What I Wouldn't Give, Like Father, Like Son, and Nothing in Common were by her first band, the aptly monikered Rhodes Scholars. Evalee Rain, and My Shepherd is the Living Lord Compositions by Spencer Capier, and Spencer Capier plays on the Michael Hart recording Journey Home. You can order Spencer's tunes and Michael's tunes from their respective websites. The ethereal sounds and imperturbable calmness of Morton Lorridson's O Magnum Mysterium was performed by Nickel Matt and the Nordic Chamber Choir, with whom, as far as I know, Carolyn has never collaborated. But hey, Nick, I know you're listening. I can put you in touch. For a cassette of this program, just send $10 to Soul Food Ghost Light at 1440 West 12th Avenue, Vancouver, B.C., v 6 h one m 8 Good night and safe travels